And now to continue our conversation this hour about the latest developments in neuroscience, late, late last year, uh, scientists released a map of human brain cells. Yeah, it was really impressive, an impressive project, an international scientific collaboration. You know, the human brain has a little over 170 billion cells, a Herculean task to categorize them all. Scientists took samples from all different parts of the brain. And they have identified this blue. This talk about mind blowing. This blew my mind. There are 3000 different types of cells. And this is only the first draft of this. So joining me now to tell us more about this exciting milestone is neuroscience in neuroscience. And to answer your questions is one of the scientists who worked on compiling the human brain cell atlas. Dr. Ed Lean, senior investigator at the Allen Institute for Brain Science based in Seattle. Welcome to Science Friday. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. I want to tell our listeners if they have questions about brain cells, how this new atlas might impact treatments for brain disorders, a brainy question about how the brain works, we want them to ask our questions and ask a neuroscientist, and that's how you can do it. Our number is 844-724-8255, 844-SCI-TALK. You can tweet us at SciFry. Again, 844-724-8255. Uh, Dr. Lean, just how big of an advance is this cell atlas for the field of neuroscience? Are we talking about a human genome project level paradigm shift here? Yes, I, I believe that's a really good analogy for the advance made uh, through this work as the first installment, really. Um, you know, one of the problems with neuroscience is the extreme complexity of the brain. And it's just very difficult to study for the human brain. <clears throat> the scale and the inaccessibility of studying the brain are serious barriers. And so we really needed a technology breakthrough to be able to handle this complexity. And the breakthrough, um, very appropriate for the genome reference, has actually come from the field of genomics, where instead of characterizing cells on the basis of their shape or who they connect with or their firing properties, Instead, one can characterize them on the basis of the sets of genes that they use. So every hmm. cell in the body has all genes in their DNA, but any given cell only uses a subset of those genes. And that molecular fingerprint of a cell is a really strong way to be able to classify cells. And so as the field of genomics has advanced, um, what's happened is that sequencing has become cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, and it's been miniaturized to be able to, in, to analyze individual cells. And now it's possible to analyze all the genes being actively used by millions of cells. Okay. And this now lets you take a much broader scope of trying to categorize the complexity of the brain. And so this first installment was really trying to get a first draft by sampling about 100 right. regions of the brain. Wow. And, and then ask, how many types of cells are there? And, you know, I think... For, for really over a century, we've understood that the complexity is high, but not quite this high. You know, the, 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 there are thousands of types of cells. So 3,000, as you mentioned here, um, even since the time of that publication, a comprehensive analysis of the smaller mouse brain has come out describing 5,000 okay. cell types. Dr. Lean, we're going to get into that after the break. We have to take a break. So stay with us. Our number, 844-724-8255. Joining us, we're talking about an ambitious effort to catalog the human brain cells with our guest, Dr. Ed Lean, senior investigator at the Allen Institute for Brain Science. 
He's based in Seattle, Washington. And our lines are open. Our number is 844-724-8255. That's 844-SCI-TALK. You can also tweet us at SciFry. So, Dr. Lean, there are, as you were saying before the break, there are 171 billion cells in the human brain. How do you possibly go about categorizing all of them? Yeah, so it's true that there are that many uh, cells, and about half of those are neurons, um, but they don't come in that many different types of cells. And so the, the key advance here is to be able to categorize the cells into um, groups of cells that belong in, uh, that live in different parts of the brain, that have different properties, uh, and make a catalog of these and a, and a map of these. And so these new technologies, as I was describing, are allowing us to create these so-called cell atlases. And on the one hand, this is a classification of the types uh, mm-hmm. where we can define how many types of cells there are, what the relative proportions are in different parts of the brain. We can describe their spatial organization now, uh, how they're organized uh, in local, local areas and also globally in the three-dimensional structure of the brain and begin to characterize then their properties and their function. And so in many ways, you know, this, this is really like the genome project in the sense of the genome characterize all of the genes and their locations on the chromosomes. Here we're characterizing all of the cells and their locations and eventually their function in the brain. One of the surprises of the Human Genome Project was just about how many genes there were, a surprising less number than people thought. Uh, Are you being surprised by how many different types of cells you're finding in the brain? Uh, most definitely. Um, these, these, uh, these sort of molecular approaches to classify cells are revealing a whole different level of complexity, probably you know, an order of magnitude more than, than we had realized before. And importantly, one or two orders of magnitude, so 10 to 100 times wow. more complex than any other organ in the body. I was just going to ask, I mean, how does this compare to other parts of our body? I, I can't imagine that like our biceps, for example, have 3,000 different types of cells. <laughs> no, nowhere near as many types of cells. So the, the complexity is, is really very high. But, but importantly, actually, um, these techniques, by using genes as the way to define cells, uh, this, this technology can be applied to any organ system. And so in addition to the brain, in parallel, there are efforts happening using these same technologies in every other organ system and even being compiled, for example, in a project called the Human Cell Atlas to try to put all of this together. So we finally have a common language to talk about the basic units of life, the cells that make up every organ in the body. But the complexity factor is much higher yeah. in the brain. Well, well, how many new kinds of brain cells have you discovered that we didn't know existed? And, and, and the second part would be, how many more do you think are out there? Yeah, so these are, these are somewhat different, difficult questions to answer <clears throat> um, because we have a new way of looking at these cells. And so when we describe 3,000 types of cells, in those parts of the brain that we understand well, we can see that this, this actually um, maps very well to what was known before, but adds another level of resolution on this. And so maybe, you know, you might have thought that there were 50 types of cells in, in the part of the neocortex. You know, now we see there may be 150 mm-hmm. types of cells. Wow. But in other parts of the brain that we don't understand as well, you know, a lot of this is brand new knowledge. And so we don't really know what this means yet, but we have the framework now where investigators across the whole community can come and begin to add information to this. And so again, very much like the genome where first the genes were mapped and then function was laid on top of that. 
this is what's going to happen now. Now that we've defined a, a blueprint of the cell types, now we can start to understand mm-hmm. what they are and what they do. Great. That's great to hear. Allison in Erie, Pennsylvania, welcome to Science Friday. Hi. Thank you. Go ahead. So this is, I'm inspired by the limits of things. I know Einstein saw things with thought experiments and Lately, I've been appreciating how we can go farther when we acknowledge what we don't. The room, so to speak. But my metaphor to start is just if we smash open a radio, of course, the machine parts don't necessarily give us all of the answers as to, you know, the content that's coming through the radio, for example. Um, I just wondered what this inspires in you and your thinking about neuroscience. And I know we're talking about the cells, but what are the implications for you? I've heard that this is paradigm shift. I'm just curious what this inspires you, whatever you found, how it's inspiring your creativity in the space in neuroscience, what it's um, inspiring you to think about or consider. And it might be a sensitive question because you're a scientist, so often you're not going to talk about things until they're proven. But I kind of wanted to challenge you to talk about that. Mm. What are some things that this inspires you to think about or even consider? Again, not to challenge the science of what's proven or not proven, but I know it's important to be creative in the space. And metaphors help me a lot. But, yeah, it's exciting what we don't know, and just curious what it's okay. inspiring you to consider or good, think about. Good question. Uh, let's get the answer to that. Uh, what do you say to that? <laughs> yes, that's a, that's a very interesting question. Um, so, so, first of all, you know, let, let me acknowledge that this is really a reductionist approach to the brain. <clears throat> we want, so, in your analogy of a radio, we take it, we deconstruct its parts, and we try to understand its parts. Um, and very much like that analogy, um, this is just the beginning, right? So now we know that the brain, uh, the neurons of the brain form circuits, complicated circuits, which are by definition the connections between the different kinds of cells. Um, and so what this really sets the stage for is beginning to take the next step. You know, if, if we don't understand the basic components, we can't understand how they connect together. So, but now that we understand um, that part of it, we can move to the next stage. Now, even that may not be the end of the day. You know, there, there may be um, software sort of on top of that, uh, that that it actually dictates the function of this. So, it, you know, it, I think that this is really just the beginning, but it is an essential component of the process here and one that we haven't had before. If you don't understand the basic building blocks, you can't understand how it all fits together to work. And, you know, I, I think that, What's, what's important to, to consider here is that we've, we've had this sort of dearth of understanding of the fine, detailed structure of the brain, and that's dramatically hampered our understanding of disease. Um, and this type of, of resource can now allow us to bring this level of resolution to understanding exactly what happens in disease. And so to, to give a, concre- a concrete example and something I'm quite passionate about is with this information, we can think of cells as things that are affected in disease that may in fact be targets for treatment of disease. So we have another project focused on Alzheimer's disease called the Seattle Alzheimer's Disease Brain Cell Atlas or CAD, where the idea is let's now look at the brain of individuals that have Alzheimer's disease and try to understand what kinds of cells are affected in disease. 
and we can map against this reference and then ask questions about what the real basis of disease is. Hmm. Whereas in the past, one would think about pathological proteins, plaques and tangles that everyone knows about that just haven't worked as a, as a way of treating disease. And what we find is that we can find all of these types of cells in individuals with disease. We can then see that certain types of cells are differentially affected or vulnerable. And so you know, this is a kind of a different way of thinking of things. It's thinking of, of the brain as a cellular organ where specific components do different things. They're differentially affected by disease and they become actual targets themselves. And something else that comes from these atlases is the ability to develop tools to target particular cells and potentially deliver genetic therapies to them. Mm. So I view this as it's not a stamp collecting exercise. This is, this is really foundational work that defines the system so that we can use that knowledge to then understand and treat disease. So how would that work practically if you are trying to treat something like Alzheimer's? I mean, how would that how would that treatment potentially work with this knowledge? Yeah, so, so Alzheimer's is maybe a difficult example. It hasn't, happens to be one that I know a lot about, but, um, but l- let, me, let me give a more, a more easy example, perhaps, of, of epilepsy. So this, epilepsy is, of course, an, an imbalance of excitation and, and inhibition and often affects the inhibitory cells. So there's not enough inhibition and you get runaway excitation that's a seizure activity. Um, one of the things that's come out of, of this cell atlas work is that we can not only understand what genes are active in what cells, but how they're regulated to be, so, be active only in those cells. So we can identify the regulatory regions of the genome that are responsible for turning on a gene in only a certain kind of cell. That regulatory element can actually be put into a virus as a means of gene delivery that common, commonly used in gene therapies now, such as adeno-associated virus. These regulatory domains can be put in to turn on expression of a particular gene, say a gene replacement of a, of a genetic epilepsy. And so you can infect cells in people and deliver a gene just to the right kinds of cells that may be able to correct those, those seizure phenotypes. And this is just one example. Many types of brain diseases will affect specific kinds of cells. And what I'm trying to convey is we can now harness this information of this descriptive atlas to build a tool to target the right cell type and hopefully correct a genetic deficiency of some sort without having side effects or off-target effects that happen by hitting the wrong kinds of cells. Really interesting technology. Let's go to the phones to uh, Rye in Houston. Hi, Rye. Yeah, how are you, Ira? Thanks for taking my call. Yeah, you're welcome. Go ahead. Yeah, so my question is, has there been any study of the connection between the gut and the brain, and is there any genomic similarities that might, you know, create a relationship or suggest one? Our microbiome, our favorite topic here <laughs> at Science Friday. Good question. Is yeah, it- that, that, is an, that is an excellent question that, that I'm afraid I'm, I'm somewhat ill-equipped to answer. Um, but I, I, let me just say that I think that the, the, the data are now becoming available to allow that kind of question to be asked. <clears throat> For example, in this human cell atlas that I was mentioning earlier, there are efforts to profile all the cells in the gut and the immune system. And so um, by virtue of using these same types of technologies to look at genetic similarities among different kinds of cells anywhere in the body, 
it will be possible to do this, and we can begin to try to see where these functional links may be. Um, but I have to speak in generalities because yeah. I'm not aware of a study that's done that today. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, sometimes big projects like this raise more questions than they answer. How much of this project helped you better understand the brain versus just opened up more questions? Oh, this this is a, a huge advance in, in understanding the brain. Um, you know, as, as I mentioned sort of before, you know, th- this really forms a scaffold. It forms a, a cellular framework. But at the moment, these are cells that are defined by genes with these kinds of methods. And that's an, a very powerful way of understanding a cell because the set of genes that are selectively used by a cell are the genes that are responsible for the properties of those cells. And so this is much more information than simply saying, you know, here's the shape of a, of a cell and we're going to categorize based on the shapes. You can't do very much with that information. But if you have all of the genes being asked, now you, you can use this in a thousand different ways. Um, what drugs might act on molecules that are expressed only in certain kinds of cells, for example. What about, ce- what about cells that are not actually in the brain? For example, I've heard that your retina is really part of your brain. We have neurons that go through our spinal cord. We talked about the gut a little bit, solar plexus. Will those cells be included in this catalog? Um, so at the moment, this particular effort is, is uh, focused on the central nervous system right. minus the retina. <laughs> so the mm-hmm. retina is actually part of the central nervous system, but it's not being included. However, um, it does profile or characterize any kind of cell that's present in the brain, whether or not this is an actual brain cell or a circulating cell in the vasculature, for example. Um, and so actually one of the things to come out of this is that there's a greater diversity of cells that aren't neurons uh, that are in the brain as well. And so this, it really does give you a, a very comprehensive view of, of the overall makeup of the organ. And I'm sorry, I've neglected to complete my answer on the, on the last phase about whether we understand the brain. Um, with this scaffold, now you can have a very targeted approach to start to characterize the properties of all these cells. So the, the gene expression part of it is very informative, but the next stage is what do these cells look like? Who do they connect to? What are their firing properties? What are their functions? And so now that you are able to pin identities on these cells, you can make very targeted inquiries to start to annotate this or interpret your functional experiments in light of what kinds of cells are actually yeah. uh, active in a behavior. If you could, I'm going to give you my blank check, if you had an enormous amount of money to do or buy or create some kind of tool to study what you want to know, what would it be? <laughs> um, uh, I think that I would actually um, invest in the the utility of creating these tools to target particular kinds of cells that can help to understand the brain and treat disease. I think there's an, an enormous new field of precision medicine that's being opened up by this this information, and uh, the you know this has already actually become it has become a, a huge priority for the NIH. Uh, that is investing in a, another program as part of its brain initiative that's called the Armamentarium, or sort of an arsenal of, of tools to be able to genetically target and manipulate different kinds of cells in the nervous system. I think this is, this is going to be uh, enormously important for medicine, where we now get a cellular understanding of different diseases and can actually target and try to correct those diseases. Wow. Wow. This is certainly exciting for personalized medicine. Thank you, Dr. Aline, for the work that you do. 
Thank you very much. Dr. Ed Lean, Senior Investigator at the Allen Institute for Brain Science. That's, of course, in Seattle, Washington.